Is there something wrong? Warning. Life support failure on all decks. Abandon ship. Maybe it is time to take command. Bridge to Captain. Join Jan Shaw updating current events as only Jan can. Library computer. Data being received. To go where too few have gone before. A production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at thesuccessalchemist.net, thewebalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com, on YouTube and Facebook, Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist, and on, on Twitter, at Coach Jan Shaw. Today is the 18th of December, 2021, and the title of this week's show is Wartime Presidency, Core Matrix Miracle, Scamdemic Falling Apart. And before I start with the news, I just want to say that next Saturday is, of course, Christmas Day. And I decided that I was going to do a different show and share some really... Um, positive messages filled with hope and um, really anticipation of what good things can happen in 2022. And what I'm asking is if anybody wants to contribute their message, then please do so. Let me have it. Uh, you can send it to my email address, jan at thesuccessalchemist.net. And I can't guarantee I'll be able to include it. It just depends how much response I get. But um, I will do my best to incorporate everybody's messages. And if you know anybody else who might like to contribute, then please pass this request on to them. So on with this week's news. So this isn't actually this week's news. This was a series of articles published uh, starting December the 3rd. And the website is slag fa s-l-a-g-f-a dot substack dot com there's quite a, got a lot of good um channels on here it's a blogging platform and a lot of the people sharing alternative news are using substack so i've got quite a few people i'm following now if you want the uh some good uh investigative journalism then uh, i'd recommend you look at what's popping up on substack so the title is The Wartime Presidency. Now, this is not news per se. It's more of um, kind of a theory, a supposition, uh, an op-ed on um, what this person, only known as Slag, actually believes is what is going on behind the scenes. And it's, it's a very interesting um, theory, actually, which is why I wanted to share it with you. And the subtitle is a four-part series that examines a fail-safe option for saving the American Republic. And I wanted to share this because I know we kind of, uh, you know, sighing about how long this whole thing is taking. But as I say many times, you know, this is such a monumental task to remove the evil deep state and cabal that have been controlling this planet for actually for millennia probably you know it's not something that just happens in a in a few weeks months or even years you know i i actually put a, a post out on facebook saying that 
these people, if you can call them human, a lot of them aren't, um, they work on a timeline of generations. You know, we're used to thinking, well, we'll get things done in a few years and we've got to get it done in our lifetime. But the cabal... Uh, the Illuminati, whatever you care to call them, they don't work on that basis. You know, they, as I've used the term before that David Icke originated, it's a totalitarian tiptoe. And um, it's it's done that way, so you don't actually notice. It's like the frog in the pan and, you know, the water heats up slowly and by the time the frog realises they're in trouble, it's too late. But obviously now we're seeing things speed up so much. They're having to do things quickly because so many people are awakening and it means that they're making mistakes and also waking even more people up because people are starting to question, you know, the illogic of what's being presented to them, particularly in relation to uh, COVID-19 and also the spin of news around the Biden administration, things like, you know, oh, the economy's doing really well and Biden's doing a fantastic job. I mean, the latest clip with Pelosi, where she looked absolutely drunk or insane, saying he was the perfect president and it was the perfect presidency. And, uh, you know, I still see a lot of people on Twitter responding to some conservative threads with, you know, Biden's much better than Trump ever was and Biden's doing all this. And um, whether they are bots, I'm not sure. Um, but there is there is still a, a, a proportion of people who are still absolutely brainwashed in the extreme. But anyway, I digress. Let's go back to the first of these articles. So part zero, the introduction. All through this, I can't get around the nagging feeling that we're not thinking big enough. First, I'm going to ask you to table for now everything you know about election law and the US Constitution. We cannot look to either for answers for what I'm about to discuss. On Free Atlantis and other platforms, Andre, Duane and Brian Cates, Kyle, uh, just underscore human underscore seven, Patel Patriot, Praying Medic, Dave Hayes, Dave from the X-22 report and many others have been speculating about how the stolen 2020 election can be returned to its rightful winner, Donald J. Trump. When this is all over, all of us are going to be partially correct in our analysis. And there's an image of a chessboard, uh, unsurprisingly. We are all looking at a chessboard in a box. We cannot see the individual moves, but occasionally we get to see a snapshot of the game. Sometimes only a piece of the board. We must speculate about what moves occurred in between and what moves are coming next. What I'm going to show you over a several part series of articles is a possible last resort or fail-safe scenario by which Trump could come back to the White House. Please keep this in mind. This is one of several possible avenues that Trump might use to reclaim the presidency. It's certainly not a prediction. Right now, no one can predict what might happen, not even Trump. Why is the Constitution not relevant to this scenario? 
because it's recently occurred to me that the US was invaded by an enemy nation in 2020, and that invasion displaced a legitimate legally elected government. And there's an image of the landing in Normandy, the Normandy landings on D-Day. I know that sounds absurd, but stick with me for a minute. This invasion wasn't in the traditional sense with ships, aircraft, troops and tanks. It was with social media, corrupted politicians, voting machines, a virus and protesters. Consider, consider the following known enemy actions. 1. Successful theft of the 2020 election. 2. Successful censoring of conservative viewpoints on mainstream social media. 3. Successful suppression of facts that were damaging to the Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. 4. Successful infiltration of MAGA in order to provoke the incident that occurred on January 6, 2021, providing political cover to brand MAGA as a domestic terrorist threat. 5. Successful flip of the US Senate and successful hold of the US House of Representatives, handing over the legislative branch of government to people friendly to the enemy's interests. 6. Successful inauguration of Joseph R. Biden as the 46th President of the United States, a politician known to be financially and politically compromised to foreign governments. Whether kinetic or fifth-generation warfare, the result is the same. A legitimate US government was forcibly removed and a puppet government was installed in its place. The central powers, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in World War II, did this all the time in the countries they occupied. Hellenic State, Greece, Government of National Salvation, roughly Serbia, Lakot Republic, occupied USSR, Belarusian Central Rada, Belorussia, Kisling's Norwegian National Government, Norway, Independent State of Croatia, Croatia at the time, Yugoslavia, Italian Social Republic, Northern Italy, established by Germany after the Allied invasion of Italy and Mussolini's government collapsed. However, this brings us to a problem. If a puppet government is actually installed in Washington, D.C., why does the enemy seem to be on the losing end of events in Washington and abroad? To recap, failure to pass restrictive gun control legislation, failure to pass the Build Back Better plan with the pro-communist parts intact, and incidentally that's being pushed back to next year because they can't get the vote through. Failure to pass the Green New Deal. Failure to stack the Supreme Court. Failure to stop 2020 election audits. Failure to stop the AUK-US deal. I'm actually not sure what that is, but anyway, let me carry on. Failure to stop F-35 sales to Japan. Failure to stop US military aid to Taiwan. Failure to secure mineral rights to Afghanistan. Failure to impeach President Trump twice. Failure to implement U.S. vaccine passports. Failure to implement U.S. vaccine mandates. Failure to keep Chinese products flowing into the U.S. smoothly, hurting the Chinese economy. Failure to implement a U.S. social credit system. Failure to stop alternative social media platforms. Failure to prevent collapse of China's real estate market. Failure to demolish the wall Trump built. 
failure to close Gitmo, failure to protect their incumbents from losing to Republican challengers, save one exception, Gavin Newsom in California, although I think that was rigged, failure to maintain control of the US educational system, they're losing control rapidly, Failure to stop the Ghislaine Maxwell, tri- Maxwell trial. Make no mistake, this is a broadside against the USS Deep State. Things will be made public in this trial that the public was never meant to know. Um, unfortunately, I think the trial is not actually proving to be so um, revealing, unfortunately. Um, failure to stop the Durham investigation. Failure to stop courts from issuing preliminary injunctions that stop vaccination mandates. Failure to successfully prosecute Carl Rittenhouse for murder, which would have effectively removed the Second Amendment right to use deadly force to defend one's life. Failure to expose or circumvent President Trump's PEADs or EOs that he left behind for the Biden administration. Failure to bring an indictment against Trump. Failure to prevent Americans from uniting under a pro-Constitution political banner. Future. Failure to hold the House and Senate. Future. Failure to protect their incumbent district attorneys from challengers. Future. Failure to protect Roe versus Wade from SCOTUS. Future. Failure to prevent SCOTUS from expanding the Second Amendment, the case will involve the question of bear, as in the freedom to leave one's house with a weapon in case of confrontation, with no need to prove the odds of such confrontation to the government. Ladies and gentlemen, look at that list of fail. If this is a puppet government, this is the absolute worst and ineffective one I have ever seen. It's almost as if China would have done better had they decided to stay out of the 2020 election and left Trump where he was. Hint, that's classic Trump when dealing with Donald J. Trump, always take the first deal and negotiate. You never tell this man no if you want to win. We see a contradiction here. One, we know the 2020 election was stolen. Two, the people who stole it aren't winning, they're losing. I like contradictions as always an indicator. They are always an indicator that you're right over something interesting. Contradictions are a cheerleading squad that pump up your enthusiasm to keep digging in your research and reasoning. Consider this with me. Ordinarily, a successful invasion and installation of a puppet government would mean the invaders would get whatever they wanted. But here's the thing, they're not. The fact that China and Iran keep losing right along with the neo-fascists is a huge data point. It begs the question, if their victory was complete, why do they keep losing? Here's a possible answer. The invasion was through subterfuge, corruption, propaganda and electronic means, not physical force with soldiers and weapons. Therefore, it's inherently unstable. This wasn't a traditional invasion. It was done electronically and through politics and media. As a result, there's no enemy holding force here in the US. Oh, there are enemy agents. That's a foregone conclusion. What I'm talking about is a holding force with enough equipment and soldiers to occupy all 50 states. That force doesn't exist. The enemy's strength is also his weakness. 
If states and American citizens simply refuse to cooperate or refuse to do what they're told, the enemy can't really do anything about it. Remember, there aren't soldiers here, so if Texas decides to defy the puppet administration, China cannot send an armoured division to Austin and arrest a bunch of people and stomp those Texans back into line. If this premise is true, then this situation has no precedent in US history. We've been looking to the Constitution to provide a roadmap and a way out of this quagmire, and it can provide some answers of how we might emerge. But the Constitution isn't the place to look for how Trump gets the White House back. If that's the case, what we're seeing goes far beyond a presidential election. If I'm reading the situation correctly, Trump has hinted that the world is at war. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, World War III started in late 2019. In this series of articles, we are going to try to answer the following questions. 1. If we can't look to the US Constitution, where do we turn? 2. How will the legitimate US government be reinstated? 3. How do we emerge from de devolution? 4. Will there be trials? We will be examining these topics in future articles. Thank you for your interest and I look forward to sharing my thoughts with you. And there are some comments down here, but let me move on to the next article, um, The Wartime Presidency Part 1, Things Remembered. A curious connection to a past conflict. Where do we turn for guidance if the US Constitution doesn't provide the answers? We must turn to the past, to the last time the world was threatened with fascism. We look at World War II. Why do we look to this past conflict? Because I think President Trump was telling us to do so all along. Let's go back to the beginning of the United States' involvement in World War II. General Douglas MacArthur's escape from the Philippines. On March the 11th, 1942, General MacArthur, his family and his staff escaped the Imperial Japanese forces by PT boat Ten days later, after a harrowing journey, they arrived in Melbourne, Australia. General MacArthur gave a speech once he reached Australia safely. Within that speech was the famous line, I came through and I shall return. He made good on his promise. October 20th, 1944, General MacArthur walked through the surf onto Late Island in a radio message later that day, he announced, People of the Philippines, I have returned. On January 20th, 2021, President Trump told reporters on the Tarmac at Andrews Air Force Base, I wish the new administration good luck and great success. Goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. This off-the-cuff remark by Trump was eerily similar to MacArthur's statement and situation. One, Trump was about to board a military transport, a VC-25A instead of a PT boat, with his family and staff. Two, Trump told his troops, we the people, I will return, just as MacArthur did before boarding the PT boat. DC was surrounded by an occupying military force. Trump escaped to a safe haven in Florida, just like MacArthur escaped to Australia. Instance two. May 6, 2020, President Trump speaks to reporters in the Oval Office and says, We went through the worst attack we've ever had on our country. 
This is the worst attack we've ever had. This is worse than Pearl Harbor. This is worse than the World Trade Center. There's never been an attack like this. There's that World War II reference, this time discussing the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. I'll remind everyone that this was the catalyst for Congress to declare war against the Empire of Japan. Trump is linking the assumed intentional release of COVID-19 by China to an act of war that caused the US to fight a two-front global conflict. Furthermore, he calls it worse. One other thing, he also said it was, quote, worse than the World Trade Center, a reference to September 11th, 2001, mentioning these two events in the same sentence to describe the release of COVID-19 tells me three things. One, this will be a multiple front global conflict that will last years. Two, this will be a mostly covert war, just like the GWOT. I don't know what that is, actually, but anyway. Three, COVID-19 wasn't an accident. It was an intentional biological attack against the world. Instance three, Acting Secretary of Defence Chris Miller's cryptic off-script moment. And it's got uh, a video there of um, Mike Pence with Chris Miller. Let me carry on. Skip to 19 minutes, 39 seconds of the video if you want to hear Miller's remark for yourself. Some of the most complex military operations in US history. So this was more complex than or achieved parity with one, Operation Overlord, an amphibious assault that moved 2 million men and their equipment from June 6th to August 30th. Two, Admiral Nimitz amphibious assaults and their naval artillery support at Tarawa, Peleliu, Saipan, Guam, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Three, building and maintaining a coalition that provided air cover over Iraq 24-7. Four, salvaging a sunken Soviet submarine off the ocean floor 12,800 feet down. Chris Miller was a senior officer in the U.S. Army. He would have studied some of these operations. The logistical difficulties involved with World War II will be required reading for sure. Furthermore, Miller comes from U.S. Army Special Forces. Why is that relevant? Special Forces operators do not make off-the-cuff remarks about current and ongoing operations. The most important thing for these men is the mission and the operator next to them. If someone blabs about a mission or ongoing operation, the mission might fail. And you or the men in your unit could die. These operators take security seriously. So did he go off script as he claimed in the video? Absolutely not. He could have thanked Mike Pence in private. There was no need to bring this subject up in front of cameras. Why did he do it? Because he was asked to, and this was a controlled information release. Although I'm not sure if the message was directed to us or someone else, what I can tell you for sure is this. Ladies and gentlemen, the US military is conducting a massive operation. But what? Amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. Ever hear that phrase? It's true. Tactics are irrelevant if you cannot support soldiers in combat. The stats required for World War II are staggering. The US Army needed one gallon of, gallon of gasoline per soldier per day. 
The Allies moved two million troops into Europe as part of Operation Overlord. A two million gallon ocean of gasoline was needed every day. Now, whatever was done to protect the nation from the fallout of a stolen election was complete in roughly one month. I'd say that was a titanic effort to get everything ready. Table this thought for now. We'll be discussing it in future articles. However, I'll tell you what they set up. Devolution. And um, I did cover uh, the first article on devolution by Patel Patriot um, quite a few weeks ago. And I am actually now working my way through the other ones to share with you in a future show. Uh, Going on, instance four, prior to D-Day 1944, the Allies were getting set to invade Fortress Europe and Germany knew they were coming, they just didn't know where. The Allies sent thousands of reconnaissance missions to Europe in the months leading up to the invasion on June 6, 1944. Beaches Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau and Sword were included in those flights. For those that do not know, those were the invasion locations in Normandy on D-Day. The other flights provided secondary and tertiary intelligence, but they also formed a screen to prevent the Germans from seeing exactly where the Allies were going to attack. Particular attention was paid to Pas-de-Calais, the logical site for invasion. Pas-de-Calais had beaches and a port. It was also the closest point geographically to the Isle of Britain. General Eisenhower did everything he could to make the Wehrmacht think that's where he was going to invade, and that included saturating the area with reconnaissance flights. What I'm getting at is that there was a metric ton of aerial surveillance activity right before the largest amphibious assault the world had ever seen. Most of this reconnaissance was necessary to support the actual invasion, but a significant portion was intentional misdirection. I ask you this. One, have we seen an abnormal amount of aerial activity from the US military over the past year? Two, did these flights involve the most sophisticated and expensive surveillance aircraft in the US inventory? Yes and yes. Folks, these aircraft are insanely expensive to buy and operate. We're talking tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars per hour in operation costs and hundreds of millions of dollars in acquisition costs. Did you know that every flight reduces the usable life of an aircraft? There's a finite number of takeoffs, landings and flight hours you can put on an airframe before that airframe is no longer safe to fly. You don't fly these aircraft for fun. There's a serious operational reason the US military is putting a lot of flight hours on any surveillance aircraft that can get off the ground. And there's a reason that all this activity is happening over the US mainland right now. Number one, enemy positions and strengths are being plotted. Two, electronic intelligence, E-L-I-N-T, is being gathered. Three, Covert operations are being supported. Four, an invasion, and remember, fifth generation warfare, this won't be an amphibious assault like D-Day, site or sites are being scouted, or one has already been chosen and the military is keeping an eye on it. Five, some of these flights are intentional misdirection to keep the enemy confused. 
What I see here is the US military has taken an unusual interest in the locations of people or things in the United States, and they've taken an unusual interest in the electronic emissions of the United States. Why would they do that? Answer, to fight a war, of course. It's the most logical conclusion. After all, isn't that why a country has a military? This similarity to World War II should not be overlooked because it allows events to occur and allows Trump a return path to the White House that's not in the Constitution. Therefore, it's hard to see. The problem with this path is that it's rather aggressive and requires public support, which begs the questions, how does Trump get that necessary public support? And also, what's he been doing since January? These questions will be answered in part two. Until then, wait for the day when you hear, my fellow Americans, I have returned. So that's the end of the second uh, article. And on to the wartime presidency, part two, the government in exile. The Trump administration officially came to an end on January 20th, 2021 at 12 o'clock Eastern time. The deep state breathed a sigh of relief. That troublesome orange man was gone from their town and the government could finally get back to its primary mission, making all of them rich. This was supposed to be the end. No more Trump, no more MAGA. No more ordinary Americans interfering with their plans. Only that's not what happened, was it? MAGA grew, coalescing under alternative social media platforms. The Biden administration ran into serious competence problems. And most irritating of all, Trump started issuing these press statements like he was still president. Serious things are afoot. The deep state is starting to realise how much trouble they've stumbled into and they're realising they're deep in the jaws of a trap. In this article, we're going to answer the following questions. What's Trump been doing since January? Why might his return have to be extra constitutional? Aside, before we go any further, I'll remind everyone that this is a fail-safe plan in the event other avenues fail. I've noticed things that mirror World War II events that may provide a hint at what's going on and what might be next. This also doesn't mean that I'm right and other authors are wrong. Aspects of everyone's postulations could prove to be true. These are mine. I thank you in advance for your attention. Let's step back to our World War II framework that's a hallmark of this article series. A few hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Empire of Japan invaded the Philippines at Bataan Island. President Manuel L. Quezon immediately rushed to Manila on December 8th despite an illness. December 16th, 1941, President Quezon Signs Commonwealth Act number 671, legally passed by the Philippine legislature before the fall of Manila. Act number 671 was an emergency declaration that authorised the Philippine president to assume extraordinary powers to institute whatever rules and regulations he saw fit to carry out the national policy. In other words, the Philippine government knew it was going to fall to the Empire of Japan, so it placed all of its authority in one trusted individual in hopes that as long as that individual survived, so also would the legitimate government of the Philippines. 
key point. This was a legal action by the Philippine government to protect itself in dire times. General Douglas MacArthur sent some of the PT boat fleet that evacuated him back to the Philippines after his party was on its way to Australia. PT-41 picked up the Quezon party and ferried them to Oroquieta in the province of Mizamiz. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but I'm doing my best. The Quezon party escaped the province of Mizamiz on B-17 bombers, which left the Del Monte Corporation's private airfield to make the hop to Australia. President Quezon communicated with President Roosevelt and requested that the remains of his government should be in Washington, D.C. to conduct matters of state there. Roosevelt agreed. The SS President Coolidge left Melbourne, Australia on April 20, 1942, under escort by the cruiser USS St. Louis, and transported the Quezon Party to San Francisco, California. They arrived on May 8th, 1942, and were met by President Roosevelt in Washington five days later. On May 14th, 1942, a luncheon was hosted at the White House, where the government of the United States of America formally recognized the government in exile of the Philippines. Aside, that official diplomatic recognition by the United States of the government in exile of the Philippines was extremely important. We'll be coming back to that in a minute. From May the 14th, 1942 to February 27th, 1945, the Philippine government in exile did not sit on its laurels in D.C., far from it. They went around the United States and helped to sell war bonds. They helped to promote the Filipino culture in the United States. They even published a magazine. They participated in the United Nations. They went all out to support the American war effort. And President Roosevelt doing so was vital to getting the Philippines liberated by American forces in 1945. One of the most important things they did was broadcast a radio message of hope into the occupied nation of the Philippines. And the Empire of Japan was powerless to stop it. President Manuel L. Quezon died of tuberculosis on August 1st, 1944. Vice President Sergio Omeña Omeña was sworn in as president of the Philippines and assumed the presidency of the reinstated government of the Philippines once the Philippine Islands were liberated by U.S. forces. Now let's see what Donald J. Trump has been doing. You're going to love where this is going. Issue 1, the notorious PEADS. We don't know what's exactly in this PEADS, Presidential Emergency Action Documents, but I'm 90% sure what was in one. One of the PEADS activated was an emergency declaration that vested all power of the chief executive and whatever legislative powers deemed necessary by that trusted person to lead the government in exile a.k.a. the cog or continuation of government. Who was that person? Donald John Trump. If this sounds a lot like Commonwealth Act number 671 to you, you would be correct. Act number 671 is how governments behave before they are overrun and captured by an enemy. I'll remind you that Trump knew there was rampant election fraud happening. It was observed in 2018 during the midterms. 
Note, General Nakasone is the director of the NSA. That's a rather odd statement to make on election day, isn't it? And it's showing a tweet from General Paul M. Nakasone. As tens of millions of Americans head to the polls, U.S. Cybercom and NSA Gov teams around the world are fully engaged, working hard with our partners to defend our elections. We took what we learned in 2018 and brought it to an entirely new level for elections 2020. Carrying on, the possibility election fraud will be used to try and unseat him from the White House as a foregone conclusion. I'll give you a guess on what went down with one of these PEDs. Sometime before the election, a PED was drafted that would transfer all governing authority to the President of the United States upon a triggering event. That triggering event was proof of a foreign government directly or indirectly colluding with election officials to change the outcome of the election. On the late evening of November 3rd, 2020, counting was intentionally stopped with hours of usable time left to finish the count. November 4th, 2020, on or around 4am, fraudulent votes were delivered to key ballot counting locations in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona. When those made-to-order fraudulent votes were added to the total, they pushed Joe Biden over the margin of victory, barely. Joseph R. Biden was declared the winner. While all this fraud was going on, the U.S. military was monitoring the election. Remember General Nakazoni's tweet? Election infrastructure was absorbed into critical infrastructure as part of the Department of Homeland Security in 2017 and the foreign involvement made it a national security issue. The military discovered evidence that an enemy government assisted domestic agents with stealing the election, and that discovery triggered the PEED. This is the PEED that, for all intents and purposes, activated devolution. But here's the thing, we haven't been thinking big enough. Remember our history lesson about the government in exile of the Philippines? Commonwealth Act number 671 vested all governing authority of the Philippines into one man, President Manuel L. Quizon. What if this PEED did the same thing and now all governing authority for the United States of America rests in the hands of Donald J. Trump? If that happened, and I think it did, Trump and the government of the United States now are the same person. The timing was critical. The PEED had to be activated prior to the vote counts that declared Biden the winner. While the Democrats were scrambling and cheating to push their zombie candidate across the finish line, the PEED was already in place and active. Trump tricked them all. They were fighting for the prize of the presidency and didn't see the PEED snatch the trophy off the table just before they declared themselves the winner. Checkmate. Issue 2, Mike Pompeo's odd statement. On November 10th, 2020, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said something odd. He said, we will be transitioning to a second Trump presidency. Also, we're ready. The world is watching. We're going to count all the votes. There will be electors selected. There's a process and the Constitution spells it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary that the State Department is functional today, is successful today, 
and will be successful with the president who is sworn in on January 20th, a minute after noon, will also be successful. Uh, it says here was Secretary Pompeo's words if you wish to hear them for yourself, and it includes a video of that. Now, the MSM had a good laugh at this, accusing Pompeo of fueling the unfounded claims of election fraud. Too bad for them. The meat of what he was saying went right over their heads. Let's examine this statement by Pompeo through the lens of a government in exile. We will be transitioning to a second Trump presidency. He won the election, but the nation was invaded. Does this still mean he's the president? Yes. Was Manuel El Quezon still president of the Philippines after Manila fell? Yes, he was. What is Secretary Pompeo was hinting at a presidency in exile? The world is watching. You bet they are very closely. We're going to count all the votes. We will need these later to prove the election was stolen. In fact, they were probably all counted days before Pompeo made this statement. Or there was hard evidence that a foreign nation meddled in the election. If the true vote count was corrupted, this will be the evidence that Biden was not the winner. There will be electors selected, yes, because these were needed to secure Trump's presidency in exile in full compliance with the law. Remember that the electors are Trump's people. They may have easily signed NDAs. Of course, that's if they were even needed. The PED would allow Trump to suspend elections in order to save the nation if he deemed it necessary. There's a process and the Constitution spells it out pretty clearly. Yes, it does. We count votes, select electors, elect a president. However, the Constitution also gives the president power to act in the event of emergencies and invasion. Once the PED was activated that vested governing authority in the current President Trump, that president could have suspended elections legally. This is why the timing was critical. The evidence triggering the PED had to be uncovered prior to the vote counts being complete and Biden declared winner. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary, that the State Department is functional to today, is successful today, and will be successful with the president who is sworn in on January 20th, a minute after noon, will also be successful. Did you catch the subtle reference to two different State Departments? will be successful, will also be successful. Why would America have or need two State Departments? Do you see how Mike Pompeo's comments make much more sense when viewed through the lens of a government in exile? I can't stress enough how important this PED was. If it created a government in exile, Trump could legally suspend elections. The selection of electors, the vote count on January 6th, the theatre, the drama... None of it mattered. It was all a distraction. Did the swearing-in of the puppet government in the Philippines matter after Commonwealth Act number 671? No, it didn't. Act number 671 protected the nation of the Philippines from its Japanese overlords. The PED did the same. Issue 3. The statements from the 45th President of the United States. On January 25, 2021, the office of Donald J. Trump issued its first press release on presidential looking letterhead. And it's got a link to um, the statements. Nothing to see here, just a former government issuing press releases. 
just like the government in exile of the Philippines did 80 years ago. Also, Trump has been holding meetings with his cabinet. On July 30th, 2021, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, said Trump met with his cabinet at his New Jersey golf course. It's got a link to an independent.co.uk news report. Apoplectic, the press threw around accusations of Trump running a shadow presidency. They later dismissed the thought as fantasy. After all, there's no possible way Trump was president. So what's the harm in him having a fantasy meeting with his former cabinet? Just like the government in exile of the Philippines did 80 years ago. Lastly, the Trump administration seems to be conducting diplomatic operations. Rick Grinnell went to the Balkans as a special envoy to broker peace between Serbia and Croatia and to try to integrate the two economies. Remember how I mentioned that Secretary Pompeo told the press on November 10th, 2020, that there were going to be two State Departments. Here's evidence of that second State Department at work in real time. This is merely one example. Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo also have had recent international travel plans, haven't they? Leftists howl about how Trump is willfully violating the Logan Act, but that assumes that Trump isn't the president. What if he is meeting with foreign leaders and officials as part of his official diplomatic duties as the president of the government in exile? Also, remember from our history lesson that official diplomatic recognition by the United States was critical to the government in exile of the Philippines. Could Trump be seeking the same with select world leaders? Just like the government in exile of the Philippines did 80 years ago. Are you seeing a pattern here? I think the case can be made that Trump is still the president and he's managing a government in exile. Which brings us to our next question. Why might Trump's return have to be extra constitutional? And that refers to outside of the Constitution. Answer, because it doesn't need to be. The United States was invaded, as I explained in part one of this series. A PED was activated by the emergency situation that placed the power of the US government into the custody of one man, Donald J. Trump. The Empire of Japan ruled the Philippines until they didn't. Joseph R. Biden is the 46th president of the United States of America until he's not. Once the invaders are removed from power, Trump will be returned to the White House because that's following the law. From there, he will resume his presidency and probably elections will be held to reconstitute the U.S. government and Ed Napede. What's the dividing line? Easy. Did you as a member of Congress or Senator benefit from the election theft? Yes, you're out and a new election will be held. No, you are the duly elected representative, period. Do you see how the Constitution isn't required for Trump to return to power? The Philippine Constitution wasn't needed to restore the government in exile. Commonwealth Act Number 671 did that. The PED will do the same for Trump. The election audits won't deliver the presidency to Trump. Decertification won't be necessary because Trump is already the president in exile. Trump can return to Washington, reveal the PED, and I think it will need to be revealed, and explain what's legally required to end the PED and resume normal government operations at any time. Like I said in part zero, we're not thinking big enough. When Trump returns, it won't just affect 
affect the office of the president. It will affect the whole of government because the current puppet state must be removed from power because that's what the law requires to end the active peed and emerge from devolution. Just like the government in exile of the Philippines did 80 years ago. If the United States was invaded by an enemy, the Constitution doesn't provide much help. After all, there's no foreign invasion clause. There wasn't a clause like that in the Constitution of the Philippines either. Sometimes extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures and extraordinary men. So how does President Trump build the necessary support to end the government in exile and resume his duties as President of the United States? What's needed? How do we emerge from devolution? This one is easy to answer, but you'll have to wait for part three. I was about to say that we'd have to wait for that because last time I looked, part three wasn't out. But miraculously, um, 11 minutes ago, part three was published. So um, I'm going to read that as well, which means I may not have time for the other things I've included in the title. But I really want to share this uh, last uh, article with you. Uh, the Trial of the Millennium, Monday Night Raw, exclamation mark. I'm not sure what that means, but anyway. We've talked a lot about current events. We've talked about what may have happened in the United States. We've talked about a potential government in exile and touched on an extra constitutional return by Trump to the White House. Now we are going to get into some new territory and examine how this might be done. Let's recap several things we've discussed so far. One, the election was stolen. Two, the United States was invaded and a puppet government was installed in the place of a legitimate one. Three, the actual legitimate government is in exile under the stewardship of President Donald J. Trump. On May 10th, 2021, a statement was released from Trump's website that mentioned the stolen election. The pertinent sentence was, if a thief robs a jewellery store of all its diamonds the 2020 presidential election, the diamonds must be returned. The full statement can be found here. That's a link to one of his um, statements. Here's the thing that I know. Trump wouldn't make a statement like this unless he was going to make a move. Releasing a statement like this and then telling MAGA to wait for 2022 and 2024 isn't like Trump. That course of action doesn't return anything. Releasing a statement like this is passing a point of no return. MAGA will not tolerate anything less than a returned election now. Releasing a statement like this and then playing nice with the people who stole the election, observing protocol and decorum doesn't make sense. That behaviour doesn't fit with who Trump is. Oh, he'll play nice with enemies until conditions are favourable to strike, and then he will destroy their careers, their businesses and their reputations. He's done it for decades and earned a reputation in the business world as a man you never cross. Trump knows that MAGA has frayed nerves right now. The stolen election, Trump appearing to do very little month after month, make a statement like this and then not following through, quite frankly, dangerous. It wouldn't take much for a bombastic individual to fracture MAGA or worse, try to lead an armed insurrection against the current puppet government. If MAGA fractures, the Republic is lost. If the American Republic is lost, if that shining city on a hill is gone, so too is the world. Trump knows this as well as anyone.
All these points indicate a move is coming, a gathering storm on the horizon. Here's an apt quote. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. For that's Rudyard Kipling, the elephant's child. Here in this article, we will listen to the honest man named How. How does Trump resolve all of this in a way that returns the election and at the same time avoids a civil war? Let's talk about professional wrestling. Vince McMahon is the current chairman and CEO of WWE. At one time, this organization was named the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, or WWF. He purchased the organization from his father in 1982 and built an entertainment juggernaut that dominated the industry. One of his many contributions to the sport was modifying the intricate storyline that was used to build rivalries between the characters and boost fan interest for championship matches. McMahon modified the storyline in the following ways. He incorporated pop bands into the storyline, vastly expanding his market audience. He built the WWF into a brand that provided family-friendly entertainment Professional wrestling up until this was rowdy and catered to an adult, mostly male, audience. Back in the 1970s, a professional wrestling match was not the place you took a family. We're going to see some eerie parallels between a wrestling storyline and the drama that surrounds the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Let's look at current events, shall we? Ghislaine Maxwell trial. It's widely assumed that the outcome of this trial will lead to indictments against several U.S. attorneys, to former attorney generals, these government officials chose to let Jeffrey Epstein walk away from serious felony charges with a slap on the wrist. And by doing so, they may have broken the law. Many other high-profile individuals that were part of the Epstein sex network face exposure and may be at risk for criminal prosecution. Note that the US Attorney's Office that is prosecuting this case is the Public Cor Corruption Bureau. That's a very big clue to where this is going. Durham investigation. Deep state efforts to stop this investigation or to pry information out of it have been unsuccessful. Durham has released rather lengthy indictments. The length and details in the indictments are unusual. This is far in excess of what's needed for an arrest. It has been suggested that the reason for the length and detail is to inform the public as to the direction of the investigation. The Hillary Clinton presidential campaign may be the target of the investigation. The Hunter Biden business connections. One year ago, it was revealed that U.S. attorney David Weiss has been investigating Hunter Biden over possible tax law violations that may be international in scope. Back in February, the Biden administration began transitioning their Senate-confirmed U.S. attorneys to their posts around the country. Two U.S. attorneys were left in their current postings. They were John Durham and David Weiss. Ladies and gentlemen, the MSM might not be interested, but something is coming from these investigations. Election audits in Arizona. It's important to remember that what was released to the public were findings, not the actual results. It's likely the results are being used as evidence for a criminal probe. Andre on Free Atlantis has postulated that the real finding of the Maricopa County election audit was that the result was uncertifiable. 
because the voting machines and tabulation machines were not operated according to election law and were not operated in such a way that the outcome would be numerically sound. That's an important distinction because audit after audit across all 50 states might show Biden as the overall, in quotes, winner. But those results are meaningless because the method used during the election to arrive at the total was a violation of the law and not secure. In Wisconsin, there's an active criminal investigation that targets election officials of willfully violating Wisconsin election law. They confessed to doing so on a Zoom conference call. Further tainting this issue is the fact that many county election officials across multiple states have destroyed ballots. That too is in violation of federal election law and makes a certification of the vote using actual results that much more impossible. The nursing home scandals. If this is true, scandals is putting it mildly. The governors of five states issued executive orders or issued public health guidance that disregarded the Centre for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which recommended that COVID-19 positive patients should only be admitted to nursing homes or similar facilities if and only if the facility can follow CDC quarantining guidance. These five states ordered or directed these facilities to admit COVID-19 patients regardless of their ability to follow CDC guidance. If it can be proven that this was done to boost COVID cases to use as political capital against President Trump, this would be one of the worst crimes in American history. Dong Yingwei defection. Although denied officially by an unnamed administration official in June, I'll remind everyone that China asked Secretary Blinken about Dong's whereabouts back in March, Blinken didn't have any idea what the Chinese were talking about. Interesting, this is covered in more detail in the um, Devolution series by Patel Patriot I mentioned earlier. Furthermore, Dong's picture has been removed from Beidou, China's search engine, and President Xi ordered top officials of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party to swear an oath of loyalty to the party. Why the order? Anyone who has studied the Cold War knows that the very top echelon of a communist system is fiercely loyal to the state. The elite's societal privileges depend upon loyalty to and preservation of that system. My gut tells me that this defection actually happened. Origins of COVID-19. The official story is that COVID came from a wet market in Wuhan, China. However, there have been many stories and evidence that have broke that cast significant doubt on the official narrative. One in particular are the documents that show that the NIH may have been funding gain-of-function research in China. This research was banned in the United States. If it can be proven that US taxpayer money funded COVID-19 and then the pathogen was intentionally released and that release was known beforehand and used politically against President Trump, this would be the crime of the century, with millions of people killed over a political disagreement. Project Veritas has been bombshell release after bombshell release with this media company. Pfizer, MSM, social media companies, their exposés on whistleblower testimonies have been shocking. Project Veritas is a real wild card in this whole mix. There's no telling what this company might reveal. Aside, I'm using terms like may, if evidence is made known, if it can be proven, etc. intentionally. 
We have studied these events, but do not forget that many in the general public have not. They just know something is wrong. I'll get back to the intentional use of these terms later. If I'm correct, all of this is going to start coming out soon. Once it starts, it won't let up or stop. These events, these shots across the bow of the deep state, are the professional wrestling storyline. This is the promotional backstory that builds upon itself, leading up to a main event, a championship match between good and evil. Of course, this will be covered on the usual patriot-friendly channels, but will the average American see it? Like McMahon did with WWF, how will Trump expand the viewership? Who will tell them? CNN. I'm actually quite serious. <clears throat> Trump doesn't build new. He buys properties that are in trouble and flips them. And CNN is under new management. The new owner is interested in one thing, accurate reporting of the news. The new CEO and chairman of CNN, Walter Isaacson, and the current CEO of Discovery, Inc., David Zaslav, are committed to this new mission statement for CNN. Recent firings of prominent anchors are evidence of this new tack, as are the stories that CNN is covering. Prior to the new leadership, CNN wouldn't have touched these stories. The fact that they are is very telling. And if I'm correct, what's coming is so big, so sensational, that the media won't be able to ignore it. Let's step back to the time where it was morning in America, March 27, 1988, WrestleMania 4. The WWF was holding its fourth World Championship match. The venue, Atlantic City Convention Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, right across the street from Trump Plaza, and sponsored by Donald J. Trump. Not satisfied with one WrestleMania, Trump hosted and sponsored WrestleMania 5 the following year. This was the first formal involvement of the Trump business empire with the WWF. But it wasn't the last. April 1st, 2007. WrestleMania 23, the Battle of the Billionaires. Let's look at the contract signing that started this storyline off. This took place on Monday Night Raw in Washington, D.C. Now, this rivalry between Trump and McMahon is an act. In truth, they are long-time friends, but the success of modern professional wrestling is the storylines. What happens in vignettes like this are just as important as the wrestling match itself. Before I say anything more about this, I'd invite you to take 22 minutes and watch this clip in its entirety. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. This clip is a hoot. I'd like you to view this in the context of what we know about Donald Trump's presidency and the fight he took to the deep state. Holy crap. <laughs> and it's got the, uh, the video inserted there. I remind everyone that everything said here was scripted, carefully scripted. It was part of the villain hero story that is part of every major wrestling match. The man who pioneered the integration of family-friendly scripted drama into wrestling matches was Vince McMahon. That idea let him expand his business and take over rival wrestling territories and made him a billionaire. Let's pull out some quotes from the exchange with commentary in italics. Vince McMahon, VM. You won't be laughing after WrestleMania. You'll be laughing at Donald Trump. That's what they all said from the moment he descended the staircase at Trump Tower. And they laughed. Until he won the 2016 election. VM. If you're a jerk from Washington, D.C., tell me. Just my point. 
What a bunch of jerks. How prophetic. DC belonged to whom? The swamp. VM. Donald Trump is going to sign a deal. A deal that's going to make him out to be the laughing stock of the entire world. That's what the deep state and their lackeys said until he won the election and made them quake with fear. VM. This is a deal that Donald Trump is not going to be able to get out of. And why? Because this is Vince McMahon's world. The deep state thought they had the election rigged. They thought they were going to walk away with the election until that fateful night in November when the numbers came in and Hillary Clinton started to lose. VM. The battle of the billionaires is on. Donald Trump cannot get out of this deal. Donald Trump, DT. I don't want to get out. I'll gladly take all the slings and arrows for you, which is, you know, what happened in the uh, after the election. VM, at WrestleMania, I'm going to do what all these celebrities want to do. 95% of all the celebrities we polled want me to win and shave your head bald. Them and the rest of the corrupt establishment wanted Trump to fail. VM, you might have the support of this audience, but 95% of them are idiots. That's what the sneering establishment thinks about MAGA. DT, to me, they look like a very smart group of people. Hello there, MAGA. DT, I'll see you there, Vince. It's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. The best is yet to come. And it was. Umaga lost the match to Bobby Langley and Vince McMahon lost his hair. Could this have been foreshadowing? Could Trump have known back then that this is how it will shake out? I don't know. But Trump learned a lot about who MAGA was. He met them in the audience. Most of the wrestlers came from humble beginnings, and some were dirt poor until they got their big break. I also know the following. 1. Donald Trump and Vince McMahon are good friends. Vince McMahon's wife, Linda McMahon, even served on Trump's cabinet as administrator of the Small Business Administration of the United States. Two, the exchange was scripted, possibly very carefully scripted. Three, the audience of a WWF match are the voters that Trump would later connect with. Many of the crowd that night, no doubt later, being, became part of MAGA. Four, when viewed out of context, this looks like another professional wrestling storyline. But when you view it through the context of what we know today and Trump's battle with the deep state, there's too much that was said that falls neatly into place. McMahon re represented the deep state and the villain in the storyline. Trump represented the future president and the hero in the storyline. The hero prevailed. Five, who loves giving the people a show? Who thinks big, larger than life? Trump. Could all of this fit into a carefully scripted professional wrestling vignette? 6. MAGA rallies were family-friendly events, weren't they? A place where you could take the family and celebrate being an American with other people, just like a WWF event. 7. MAGA rallies were carefully scripted and threw a ton of shade towards deep state players. This was setting up the hero-villain dynamic, just like a WWF event. 8. Trump and his MAGA rallies dominated the media coverage, vastly expanding viewership and brought people into politics who had never been interested, just like the WWF did. 9. Look at the 2016 debates. Trump had a nickname for everybody. Low-energy Jeb, Little Marco, Lying Ted, Forkahontas, 
Crooked Hillary, and they stuck. If you've ever followed a professional wrestling storyline, you've seen this behaviour, witty insults between the wrestlers that build up to a confrontation. Do you see the parallels here as to how Trump intends to treat the deep state and how he ran his 2016 campaign? There's too much to ignore. The political arena had never seen this before and it took them completely by surprise. They never had anyone behave like this on the presidential stage and to their shock, Trump's behaviour resonated with America. That's the background, but what more is coming? How do we emerge from devolution and how do we end the government in exile? Do you remember in part two how I said that Trump could end the government in exile at any time? Do you remember how I said that his return could be extra-constitutional? There's something else. If he returned and made the claim that the election was stolen and presented the PED that activated the government in exile, I'm pretty sure three things would happen. One, an instant constitutional crisis would present itself. Two, the country will be ripped into along party lines, with claims of treason being shouted across the political battleground. Three, a very real likelihood of a civil war exists under these circumstances. On one side, you'll have MAGA that won't accept anything less than the full reinstatement of President Trump. On the other, you'll have millions of Democrats and rhinos that won't accept this claim. No matter what Trump says, they simply won't accept this as an option. These opinions are not reconcilable, but both cannot exist in the same space. The deep state wants a civil war, and that's the problem. Trump showing up in D.C. and announcing that he was still the president via an emergency PED would create the environment for one. And that's giving the enemy exactly what he wants, the potential annihilation of the American Republic. Anger may in time change to gladness, but a kingdom that has once been destroyed can never come again into being. Sun Tzu, the art of warfare. The Republic would be in grave peril if a civil war were to start, and there's no guarantee that, one, we would emerge united, two, we would still have a Republic, three, we would not have our country in ruins. So we have a contradiction. How do we end the government in exile, end devolution, restore Trump to his rightful place as president, and remove the possibility of a civil war? We need a venue to air these grievances. We need a place where we can introduce facts and evidence, where the public may learn about what happened and where a record will be kept of the proceedings. We need a court. But for a case of this magnitude and because a constitutional crisis exists, we need the Supreme Court. In essence, Trump is bringing a lawsuit against the puppet government for the prize of the presidency and the legislative branch. How do you get your diamonds back? You get a court order, of course. The Supreme Court is a co-equal branch of government and is able to decide election questions. They did so in Bush versus Gore in 2000. In that case, they established precedent that the Supreme Court may decide presidential elections that spark a constitutional crisis, just like what we have here. This is why I intentionally used those terms earlier. Accusations are not evidence, and in this arena you had better bring the receipts. What might this look like? President Trump comes to Washington, D.C. and announces that he is actually president due to a unique emergency circumstance that triggered a continuity of government situation.
On the other hand, Joseph R. Biden was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States on January 20th, 2021. This is a question that the Supreme Court will not be able to dodge. You cannot have two presidents, and if they choose to do nothing, the county might face, I think that should be the country, might face a civil war. If the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, I believe the court will find the election invalid and a true winner impossible to determine. Here are some possible outcomes from the trial. 1. They send the question back to the people and a new election is held with court-ordered safeguards in place to prevent the cheating of 2020. 2. The court finds that a unique situation exists where it cannot be determined who was elected president, the same as if both candidates received an equal number of electoral votes. Therefore, to determine the outcome of the election, the court will order Congress to elect a president and vice president under a contingent election, as directed in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, where the House of Representatives elects the president and the Senate elects the vice president, with each state delegation casting one vote. Aside, this part of the outcome of the court case came after a discussion between myself, Kyle and Dwayne Cates. I cannot claim that it's my own work, but I can ask that the readers of this piece check out their Substack pages. You will find insightful and well-written material there. If you are able to, please consider a paid subscription to those Substacks as their comments help me make part three that much better. Their pages may be found here and it's got the links to the different Substack pages. Thank you for your thoughtful consideration of support for these writers. I know that some of you reading this aren't going to like this theory. That dislike will probably be rooted in a mistrust of our institutions. I cannot say that I blame you. These institutions have done much to earn that distrust. To address that valid concern, I'll say this. First, Trump knows lawsuits. He's used them in business dealings all of his adult life. He's going to have excellent attorneys on his side litigating this case. Who? My guess will be Jay Sekulow, the attorney who defended the president in the impeachment trial. Another possibility is Alan Gura. He's represented Second Amendment cases for years and is an expert in punching holes in the government's absurd arguments. Still another will be Rudy Giuliani. Rudy did a lot of work introducing evidence to state legislatures regarding the stolen election, and he already formed a good legal team for that work. Second... Trump has a powerful legal weapon at his disposal, and that weapon is the truth. If you have the truth on your side, the facts of this case will bear that out. If you don't, you must rely on confusion, subterfuge, and character assassination. Trump's legal team will wipe the floor with the deep state's arguments, just like they did with the articles of impeachment. Third, taking this to court would allow evidence to be introduced actual evidence and not fabrications or accusations. Furthermore, it would provide a record of the trial and a volume of transcripts and evidence that was used to make the case. This permanent record will make Trump's claim, and I believe eventual victory, nearly impossible to marginalise or cast doubt upon. Fourth, it's important to remember the kind of person Trump is. He was cheated very badly in the election, I know from reading his book that he's been in this position before as a business owner and he doesn't live and let live. He gets even. Trump will take his pound of flesh.
I know that there are some who feel like they've been betrayed by Trump, that he ran away and left us at the mercy of a tyrannical government. I'm sensitive to that concern, and I'd also challenge the people who feel that way to spend some time getting to know Donald Trump better. Read The Art of the Comeback. You'll be glad you did. Fifth, will SCOTUS dodge their responsibility? I don't think so. This is a very unique question about the Constitution and firmly in their wheelhouse. Also, they will know as well as anyone that if they dodge their responsibility on something of this magnitude, they risk the Republic falling due to civil war. Sixth, would Trump win a contingent election? Probably, by a very narrow margin. Right now, state delegations voted by party line the vote will be 23 Republican to 22 Democrats, with two states, Michigan and Pennsylvania, as toss-ups. Now, I won't say this path is risk-free, but there's a very important thing to remember. Some of these state delegations will be from purple states. Nevada, Arizona, Minnesota and Virginia could easily flip, especially if those state delegations got reams of letters from home warning them that voters would hold the individual representatives responsible at the ballot box if they voted for a cheater. It's likely that other states would flip too. One choice is, let's go Brandon, the other, make America great again, again, which is the winning message. Seventh, how much do you trust President Trump? I trust President Trump. I see Trump navigating these stormy waters like a shark, the apex predator. I see the art of the comeback and a professional wrestling storyline playing out in real time. I saw Trump successfully fight off two impeachments with ease. How, do you, how much do you trust our president? Are you willing to let him go all in and pledge our lives, our fortunes and our sacred honour on this one trial? I am. In part four, we will examine justice for the crimes to which our nation was subjected. How we write the balance as injured parties to the injustices of fascists. Until next time, enjoy the show. And that's as far as we've gone with those um, articles. Um, once part four is out, then I'll definitely include that in a follow-up show. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This is really fascinating stuff. I hope you've enjoyed it. And it does give us a, a much more optimistic view of how this situation might be resolved. So just to remind you, you can find me at the successalchemist.net, the webalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com. And I hope you'll join me for another edition of the Cosmic Creating Show next week. And as I say, I'm going to do a special as it's Christmas Day, uh, passing on some positive messages. And thank you again to Nancy for producing. So stay safe, be well, and bye for now. You have been listening to the Cosmic Creating Radio Show with Jan Shaw, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Live long and prosper.